This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Hey, Dr. Jana, welcome back. Yay, we're back. Now, I know you got that big event you want to promote. I want to get it out of the way. Let's get, let's get to this, this okay, bi-curiosity okay. thing you're doing. Yes, it's about mostly heterosexuality, bi-curiosity, or sexual fluidity and flexibility that we might maybe all have, or all right. some people may have more than other people. Right. We're going to talk about this, a little lecture, a little discussion on the 16th, that's Thursday, November 16th, in Brooklyn. Okay. And people can find information about that on Eventbrite or on Facebook as Sex Science Social by Curiosity. Now, if no one's ever been to one of these sex socials before, mm-hmm. what, what can they expect? Just for, you know, because this podcast introduced the world of, <laughs> of Dr. Jana and the world of uh, having fun to a new audience. So what, what do they expect at one of these deals? There will be a lecture with okay. PowerPoint and some data. Ooh, you know, it's a science. Okay. It's a sex science oh, okay. social. So no yeah. sex. Good, good. People keep their clothes on. Excellent. That's a good call. <laughs> and we will talk about these things, about sexual orientation. And that's actually one of my uh, research topics that I've done a lot of that research myself on. Okay. That's something that I was working on during my doctoral studies with my advisor, Rich Savlin Williams at Cornell. And so it's a topic that's very dear uh, to me, okay. in addition to my other casual sex slash non-monogamy uh, topics that I've studied. But this is... This is another thing that. That's it. All right, cool. So this is like one of your hobbies by curiosity. (laughs) Exactly. All right. And people can either be there in person if they want to be there in person and or they can watch it as a live stream because we're going to live stream it on my personal Facebook account, which is Jana Vrangalova, right? Okay. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That last name. Yeah. It's awesome. So we got the plug out of the way. What's coming up today on the Science of Sex podcast? So today we have Lara Greaves from the University of Auckland, New Zealand, all the way from New Zealand. Down under. Uh-huh. Right? I think it's down under. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded right. Yeah, absolutely. My accents are terrible. Okay. And we're going to talk about whether asexual people have more mental and physical health issues than hetero, gays, lesbians, and bisexual. So the sexual people. So we're going to talk about asexuality, basically. Wow. Okay. So we're running the game. We got bisexuality, asexuality. <laughs> we do it all here. I know. We're doing well, sexual orientation, the extravaganza. <laughs> all right. Let's get going. The science of sex, foreplay. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it's sort of become a running theme on our show, but the sexual harassment roundup, Dr. Jana, <laughs> are you ready for I guess, it? I guess every week we're going to have a little roundup of what's yeah, happened in I, this, because there's a lot going on right it's now. It's so sad. Well, no. I mean, the latest with Kevin Spacey is he's been fired from Netflix House of Cards, mm. but now he's saying he's going to rehab for sex mm. and people could probably hear your eyes rolling behind the back of your head <laughs> just because so we know how you feel about sex addiction yeah we talked about that whole thing a you don't of, buy it a couple yeah. of episodes yeah. ago Harvey yeah. Weinstein was, mm-hmm. was going to that right and a lot of other people have gone to that it's kind of the uh, I know, you know I know the excuse muster some the, energy here please I, I, I'm just so tired of this coming up again and again and again like I doubt these people have a sex addiction yeah. they just managing themselves and they weren't behaving yeah. appropriately in terms of how they express their sexual desires and that's not a sex addiction thing that's a social skills thing and, yeah. and respect thing and being able to communicate your yeah. needs and wants in a way that is consensual yeah. <laughs> right to other people and that's not about a sex addiction they don't have a problem 
with having an extremely high sex drive. Right. Well, the thing is with Kevin Spacey, <laughs> I mean, the stories that have come out from the set of the show uh, House of Cards, one, one of the stories was it was so prevalent, the sexual harassment on, mm-hmm. on the set, that it, they warned new employees that if Kevin Spacey asked you to play video games in his trailer, bring someone with you. Oh, wow. Because that was sort of like his intro to be like, hey, come to my trailer. I've got video games, which sounds super <laughs> creepy that like this, wow. you know, this middle-aged man is inviting young men over to play video games. But needless oh, to say, man. that's sort of like a code word that like uh-huh. come to my trailer video for game video means, games. Okay. means other things. Okay. That that sounds like we're in high school. Yeah. No, it's oh, pretty disgusting. Okay. Yeah. And, and speaking yeah. of sleazeballs, Ben Affleck has <laughs> been raked over the coals for a lot mm. of the things he's done in the past in terms of harassment interviewers and what he's doing is he's giving up all the money that he makes from Harvey Weinstein films and donating it to charities to handle rape and harassment so he's you know okay. he's, he's trying to play the good guy here you, you can't begrudge the guy it's like listen he's gonna I mean he's rich so it's not like he's gonna miss out on his goodwill hunting money but the <laughs> fact that he's going above and beyond because it's not like anyone else is you know throwing money out the window I think Kevin Smith is another one who said he's gonna donate all his Harvey Weinstein no that's you know, great money. I think that's that is a, one way that people can do something about yeah. beyond just Denouncing and apologize. Or, or, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly donating money to Rain, I think, in this yes. case, and also I think he said he was donating money to, to independent film. Yeah, Ben Affleck might be one of those people for whom, like we talked about last time with restorative justice, right? That n- maybe not every career needs to be ruined yeah. over something that happened. That some people, depending on what their transgressions were, yeah. maybe we can give them a chance to reform themselves and do better, and yeah. potentially teach other men how they kind of go on this yeah. path of becoming better. Now, it's funny how we've, we've talked about societal shifts over the last few weeks. And the one thing that's funny, a lot of things that Ben Affleck's been called out on, they have nothing to do with the Harvey Weinstein thing, but he's been called out in the way he's treated like female reporters. Mm-hmm. He's done this on camera and it's lived in video mm-hmm. on YouTube for decades, right? Like there was no a, one has, no one said yeah. a peep. Like the the one Hillary Burton, who's an actress now, someone pulled up an old video of her on MTV where he kind of felt her up to a certain degree, like quickly, like oh. he grabbed her boob, uh-huh. and it turned into a joke. Like they joked about it, <laughs> and then there was one where he took a Canadian reporter and had her sit on his lap okay. during an interview. Again, these are interviews that happened years mm-hmm. and years ago, and I'm sure they might have been like a minor, like oh god, what's Ben Affleck doing? But it's just so funny now that mm-hmm. he has to apologize for something that's already. It's not like the Kevin Spacey stuff right, right. where like we people didn't, didn't know. Yeah. yeah, we didn't know there was video games yeah. being offered here. Right. With ben Affleck. Right. He, he was doing this in full view in front of the camera. We we're just interpreting these things yeah. differently and reacting to them differently. And I, I do want to say, like, I don't actually know exactly what those things ha- were yeah. and how those events transpired. But to what extent do we really want to change our standards of what we think is acceptable or not acceptable or just yeah. a little cheeky or whatever? Right, the the sitting on someone's lap. Like, is that in every? in each case, yeah. sexual harassment. Like, what if the person wanted to sit on somebody's yeah. lap? But I think at that point, it almost comes to, like, the battle of sexes and higher power because he is the star and she is, like, the host. So she so she has to placate to him because she's trying to do her job and no man interviewing Ben Affleck would have to sit on his lap to try to get him to... <laughs> sure, so sure, sure. I think Absolutely. that's one of the problems as well. Yeah, depending on the context sure. there was. Sure, yes. But. Well, but co- I don't necessarily want to live in a world, in a society yeah. where a man cannot suggest to a woman that he would like her to sit on his lap. I think those are nice things to have in yeah. our world where, and, and, and a woman can suggest to a man that she would like him to sit yeah. in her lap. I want to live in a world where both people feel very comfortable saying no yeah. if they don't want to do that yeah. and that is perfectly okay and is not going to affect their careers or 
wives or anything. Well, you brought that up earlier with the Kevin Spacey thing, social cues. If two people were together and they were hanging out and it seemed like there was a vibe between them, the guy could say, hey, you want to sit on my life? But if the guy is oblivious to the fact that the woman finds him repulsive and right. disgusting, right. that mm-hmm. when once you ask that, can you sit on my life? It's like, oh, you've crossed a line there. So mm-hmm. again, I think it's one of those things where people are just not, I guess, cognizant enough, I mm-hmm. guess, or, or, or smart enough to realize that they're in the wrong. But now... I think everyone just errors on the side of wrong. It's like, hey, listen, you sit over there. I'll sit over here. I'm all good, you know? <laughs> yeah, if you find someone attractive and they say sit in my lap, then you're like, yeah, I want to sit in your lap. But if you don't find them attractive and they say, would you like to sit in my lap, then it's sexual harassment? Well, no, it's not sexual harassment. I think if they pulled you over right. and like they basically forced you to sit on their right. lap, that's one thing. But right. if they suggested it in some other way, just because... That's just hitting on somebody. If you don't like that person, if you feel you know comfortable saying no, you don't yeah. feel like they're going to force you or they're going to harm your career right. if you said no, in which case that would be harassment. But like just somebody who's who you're not attracted to hitting on you yeah. by saying something that like that in and of itself yeah. is not harassment. It's just being hit on by someone you don't find attractive and you can say no. Yeah, well, so that's that gray area we've t- been talking about for a while. But he- I've got something that's pretty much black and white for you. Okay. Are you ready? A rheumatologist in Canada lost his medical license after being found guilty of sexually abusing two patients, including one woman he questioned about her sex life and the size of her husband's penis. Now, I'm not sure what a rheumatologist is supposed to do, but I don't think the husband's penis should have anything to do with it. Yeah, I don't think how that is relevant. No, so. probably not. <laughs> I mean, unless she had some weird back pain that could have been potentially caused by a big penis, but I think that would probably be a stretch. Yeah, <laughs> and this doctor, Dr. Martin Lees, had a bit of a pattern. A panel earlier this year found him guilty of sexually abusing two patients, including one who we showed gay porn to before asking her about sadism and masochism. And then he also rubbed his groin against another patient's hip while giving her an injection. This guy was uh, okay. pretty much a wall-to-wall <laughs> nutcase, uh, sleazeball, cr- sleaze cr- anything you can okay. think of, any descriptor. He is no longer practicing medicine, which is probably a good thing for anyone that lives in Canada <laughs> and runs across a Martin Lee. Yes, I, I agree. That, that oh, sounds... you agree with me on this? Because usually I take the other side. So you agree that this No, I mean, I agree that this person, there's, there's something going on with them and kind of bizarre that yeah. uh, he's bringing up these topics. But I do want to say, again, I I don't think that's the case with this one, because it, these conversations about sadism, masochism, uh, and, and whatnot. Wiener sizes. And wiener sizes, yeah. yeah, sound completely irrelevant and gratuitous to you know the conversation that they needed to have in terms of a medical provider right. uh, patient. But this brings up a different topic that I j- actually just wrote about in one of my Forbes pieces, that many people who have, especially people who have non-traditional sexual lifestyles and behaviors like the you know people engaging in sadism, masochism, BDSM, kink, fetish, also non-heterosexual people, they very often feel very uncomfortable uh, or fearful sharing that kind of information with their medical health providers, even when that is relevant to oh. get good care and appropriate care and relevant care or not be misunderstood. Like if you have bruises on your body and those were gotten consensually because you were you know beaten by your top right. in a way that you wanted it, but that can often be mistaken for intimate partner violence or something like that. And so, so that's funny. So these people who are who are into kink or other mm-hmm. forms of fun, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, that they're afraid to discuss things with their doctor. Yeah, even when they're relevant, and they often will not seek care or delay care because they fear being stigmatized and judged and misunderstood when wow. coming out. And it's real because they do have the right to be fearful because medical professionals very often get 
almost no sex education or very little sex education. There was some earlier study from about 10 years ago, and I don't know how much things have changed since, but basically about 50 or 60% of all medical students got no more than 10 hours of sex education, period, during ten- their entire 10 hours. Wow. Yes. And likely none of those included anything that had to do with BDSM no. or alternative sexualities <laughs> right. of any kind. So, you know, him asking, like, what is sadism or masochism? Like, I think a lot of doctors have that same question. I don't think this is the appropriate venue for him yeah. to ask that or way to ask that. But this is a real problem. And I think everybody would benefit a lot more from providers, especially when it is relevant, mm-hmm. like OBGYNs or mental health professionals or you know people doing STI testing right. or something Emergency like that. room. If you go Emergency, in and you have like yeah, an ore exactly. stuck in your mm-hmm. anus, you have to say... <laughs> How did, don't, I don't know. That's the only thing I could think of. But say if you have something in it, you can't say you fell on the oar. You can say things got out of hand. It's important for doctors and patients to be able to talk about sexuality stuff. And very often it's not on the patients to come and disclose these kinds yeah. of information. The doctors have to be comfortable asking the questions. They have to be able to ask them in a non-judgmental way. Hmm. And they have to be able to receive whatever information they get from their patients in a non-judgmental way and be able to provide relevant information and relevant type of care. So they need additional information themselves and mm-hmm. additional training to be able to provide that kind of care, to, you know, to be able to be knowledgeable about these things. Do you think there'll be a generational shift in terms of doctors now? If Now that a lot of this stuff is more mainstream, like mm-hmm. kink is more mainstream mm-hmm. than it ever was before from a doctor who went to medical school 40 years ago. So do you think sure. doctors who are now you know, graduating and practicing and working in hospitals, do you think they would be more knowledgeable or more accepting? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I do expect that that would be the yeah. case, but that still leaves it on to the individuals themselves to educate this themselves outside of the medical school or medical practice right. context. And un- until you have medical schools really incorporating sexuality education in a more systematic way and adding a lot more than 10 hours, mm-hmm. that is not going to change dramatically, at least. We need to do a lot more on that front. Cool. All right. So we talked about the kink. Uh, I mentioned something about the or, but let's go ahead on the other side of the spectrum next and talk about people who don't have much of a sex drive. Yeah, asexuality. The science of sex goes deeper. Earlier this year, Archives of Sexual Behavior published a study on asexuality. Using data from a nationally representative sample of over 15,000 New Zealand adults, the researchers found that about 0.4% of all New Zealanders self-identified as asexual on an open-ended question about sexual orientation. And then when compared to straight folks, the self-identified asexuals were, one, more likely to be women than men. They were more likely to not identify as cisgender, as either a man or a woman. They were less likely to be in a serious romantic relationship or a parent. But then contrary to some past research, the asexuals did not differ from heterosexuals or gays, lesbians, or bisexuals in terms of other demographic variables such as ethnicity, socioeconomic status, education, religiosity, nor in their mental, physical, or social health and well-being. Here with us from New Zealand is the lead author on this paper, Lara Greaves, to talk about some of these asexuals and uh, how they compare to heterosexuals. 
Sarah is in her last month of a PhD. Woohoo, last month. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> in the School of Psychology at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Her research is broadly in the area of social psychology, includes everything from indigenous voter turnout to the psychological recovery of earthquake survivors. Wow, she's... That's quite the range. <laughs> Speaking of spectrums, Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of her particular interests is in sexual orientation, and her work so far has explored the different identity terms used across a large national sample of New Zealanders, personality differences and similarities across sexual orientation, asexuality, pansexuality, the characteristics of those who cannot or will not answer sexual orientation questions. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And the intersectionality of gender, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. Lara, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is asexuality? I think a lot of people are a little confused about what exactly it is. Is it about lack of sexual desire, lack of sexual attraction, behavior? What are we talking about here? So asexuality just refers to people who perhaps have, have looked at their own sexual attractions and gone, hey, I'm not as intersex as what everyone else seems to be. Or they've realized that they don't experience sexual attraction in the way that a lot of people do, or they just don't experience any sexual attraction to anyone. So they're just not into sex. They're not into people. They don't like necessarily see people and go, oh, I wonder <laughs> wonder what they look like naked or anything. They're just not not into that. And, you know, it's all kind of um, quite a lot of natural variation in, in sexuality, right? Because we know there are some people that are really sexual. And then on the other side, there are people that are asexual. It's about not having sexual attractions to other people, but... You're saying also about not kind of having a sex drive? Yeah. So a lot of um, asexual people, some of them have no sex drive at all and are just never thought about sex, have just never been into it at all. And then some asexual people have a very low or just like what we would call no sex drive, but also what we, you can also say no sexual attractions um, or like a low level of sexual attractions as well it kind of comes under this term of asexuality because it's kind of like an umbrella term that includes people that yeah, have no attractions and then people that are, might call themselves demisexual or just have low levels of sexual attractions. I'm just trying to think of an example in layman's term. Like an asexual person see, uh, for example, I don't know, like George Clooney and be like, oh, he's kind of cute. Like, or they wouldn't like they wouldn't respond to his looks. How does that work? Yeah, so we can all we can all recognize people even even if you identify as heterosexual, right? If you're a heterosexual man, you can still recognize whether another guy is attractive, right? Absolutely, George Clooney um, is a handsome but, man. Yeah. Apparently, Joe likes yeah. George Clooney. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. Yeah, we're all alive in society, and we can kind of recognize whether someone's facial features are symmetrical, or you know, whether people prize a certain person for attractiveness. So, asexual people can recognize whether someone someone's attracted, but it's like they don't don't necessarily want to, wouldn't want to carry that through to sleeping with them or like having a sexual relationship with oh. them. So they can recognize beauty and attraction. It's just, there's no drive there to pursue it or, or do anything with it. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there's people that identify um, as asexual, but still have romantic attractions. So those people might um, look at someone like George Clooney and go, well, I'm not, don't want to have sex with him. He's not sexually attractive to me, but I might want to pursue a romantic relationship and get to know him. Oh, okay. So there's also that dimension. So there's a difference between sexual attractions and romantic attractions and like interest in having sex with someone versus interest in a relationship. Yeah, there is. And there are people that are asexual, but they still want to have that bond, like maybe a marriage, maybe a long-term partnership, maybe a family with people. Um, but they don't necessarily want to have regular sexual contact. It's funny. The term asexual gets thrown around when you don't see someone who's in a relationship or they're very private about it. But how many people are asexual out there? I mean, is there, is there a stat out there that, that <laughs> yeah, can tell us? Yeah, what is the us? prevalence? The first study came out, the first kind of big study that 
brought more attention to this because we know asexual people have probably existed since people have existed. Mm-hmm. But the first big academic study was Anthony Bogart, who looked at a large sample of um, people from the UK and found that up to 1% of people may be asexual. And that was defined as people who said they didn't experience sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. So on a how attracted are you to people sexually scale, they kind of rated themselves as very low. On our In our paper, we found I think it was 0.4% of people. But those are people that actively said, I'm asexual or I'm demisexual or I'm aromantic. So they used a term to describe their sexual orientation under that asexuality umbrella. So it varies a lot depending on how you're measuring it. But we think it could be up to 1% or maybe even more of people because it's one of those things where we know societies, Western society is very sexed up. And so saying that you don't, you're not sexed up, you're not intersex is one of those things where people feel stigmatized or don't necessarily want to say that because there's this pressure to be sexual. There's like the right amount of sexuality. So it's not okay to be too sexual, but it's not okay (laughs) to be not sexual at all either. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost as if there's this this magical range that we should all be between. (laughs) Now, Laura, I'm in charge of asking the stupid questions on the show, (laughs) uh, as you probably already (laughs) understood that. Um, Do asexual people know that they're asexual? Well, I think one of the great things and um, one of the great things for asexual people has been the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think for most people that maybe fall out of this this sort of whatever normal is bounds, right? This heteronormative, like, you know, however many sexual partners of your life and, and that kind of thing. Anyone who falls outside of those bounds, the internet has been a gift. And for asexual people, there's this um, Asexual Visibility and Education Network, AVEN. And that's like, there's, there's a range of sort of boards and forums on there and a range of information. And a lot of people seem to have gone on there and like found out, hey, this is me. I'm asexual. Like they've kind of figured out from that website and other other websites that that's, that's who they are. Because I think for like reading some of the qualitative research, like the interviews of asexual people, it's been a matter of them going, ah, oh, okay. I don't seem to be experiencing this in the same way as my best friend is or in the same way as a whole bunch of other people are. So why don't I get online and try and figure it out? So let's say that 1% that Bogart found in the in the UK sample is the percentage mm. of people who don't feel sexual attraction, but probably yeah. a large percent of them are not necessarily going to identify as asexual because maybe mm. they haven't found that term to use or they have not become yeah. aware that there is a thing like that out there, right? Yeah, and of course we have to include in that there may be people for some medical reason they haven't experienced sexual attraction and then they don't feel like that's their identity but that's just something that they've had, you know, almost like a condition. And that's when we start looking at hypoactive sexuality disorder, which is the main difference between that and asexuality is asexual people, other than coming to terms with one's identity, don't feel distressed about this, don't feel like this is a disorder or don't feel like this is something that's wrong with them. It also feels like the asexual people have this as a lifelong kind of experience, whereas the hypoactive sexual desire folks used to have desire or attraction and then lost Mm. it and maybe that's why they're more distressed about this right yeah and it's one of those things where if you ask someone over like say you you approach someone who's 50 60 70 even and you say over your lifetime can those people necessarily remember (laughs) right (laughs) you know if it's been if it's been 20 years since you've been attracted to anyone i mean is that just all your life then Mm. Now, is there any fluidity when you're asexual? Like, can someone be asexual for 10 years and then all of a sudden flip the switch and be, oh, by the way, 
I find Dr. Jana very attractive. I'd like I don't to. Know how anyone could find me? No, oh, I know, right? Well, let's in this special case, Lara. Does that happen? Well, we're just not sure yet about that. This sorts of stuff. So, because asexuality really, there's only been studies over the last 13, 14 years. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I haven't found anything yet with a substantial sample over time. And of course, we've got to be careful whenever we do like sexual fluidity studies um, to try and you know get the best data that we can. And we and we know there's some fluidity with other sexual orientations. So we, I mean, I'm sure we'll expect that from um, asexual people. And that's one of the studies that we hope to conduct with um, the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study that we work on. Let's talk about your study a little more, the New Zealand one. What is the sample and how did you measure asexuality in your study? With our study, the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study, we are very lucky in New Zealand. We have everyone who's enrolled to vote, their names, their address, and we can just post out mail to them. And for our study, it's people who, yeah, we're very fortunate, (laughs) people who respond and actually fill out the survey. And at at one time point, I think the one, like our biggest time point has been 19,000 people. So broadly, nationally representative. Out of what? um, We've only got four and a half million people in New Zealand. So (laughs) I think at one point we had figured out that we had sent surveys to like half a percent of the population. Um, Wow. So basically everybody who's registered to vote in New Zealand automatically is opted into receiving survey questionnaires. Yeah, from university researchers, though. So it's got to be, oh. we've got to have a reason. Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> <I can't, laughs> the toothpaste sales. Right. So. Job can't yeah. just, like, send a random survey to all well, New Zealanders. Yes, I would okay. say. So, so listen to our podcast. I couldn't send an invite <laughs> to the four and a half million people there, oh, I guess. Okay. No? Okay. Okay. No. We're pretty broadly representative, the this, this sample. There's little little differences um, between the population. For example, women like to fill in surveys more than men do. Mm. Yeah. But we are broadly representative and we adjust for any biases. It's quite a long questionnaire that looks at people's like personality, some of their political attitudes, their health, their mental health, and all sorts of indicators. And then right at the end of our survey, we have a question. And it's just like an open-ended question, which means you write in whatever response comes to mind. And it is, how would you describe your sexual orientation? And our responses to that question, we've written a number of papers on this now, it's just kind of a strength because on the one hand, people can write in whatever they want. And this has meant that people who are asexual, we're not picking up on people who might not have sexual attractions, but don't identify as asexual. So it's only people that actively identify as asexual, like they know the language, Mm. they know the term, and they've written it in. Oh, so there was no box for them to check off? It was just like a blank. Wow. No, so they just had to write whatever came to mind. And for a lot of people, like this is another paper that we're looking at now, um, is people that struggled with this and the differences between those and people who did just write in heterosexual or gay, a large proportion of people actually struggled with this. And and we found educational differences and um, they tend to be more conservative as well, people who can't answer the question. But with Mm. this question, you had about 0.4% of all New Zealanders who at least had a valid response to this open-ended question that identified as some sort of asexual. So these are people who, as you said, really know the language, have applied this label to themselves and felt comfortable enough to share it on an open-ended survey, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And talking about how the asexual group didn't differ from the sexual group, if you will, you found, and other studies have found this, that the asexual group was more likely to identify as a woman. Yeah, we found the same thing, that more asexual people also identified as woman. And this seems to be 
in part a sex around if you're a woman and you say, oh, I'm asexual, I don't I have, I have low levels of sexual attraction. It's almost like it's more socially acceptable as a woman mm. to shy away from sex than it is if you're identifying as a man. So that seems to be one of the sort of things that that difference is attributed to normally. So they just feel There's, more comfortable I mean, coming out as asexual. Yeah, and that'll be really interesting to look at over time and look at it in our sample and see if more men come out as asexual over time because we've kind of found an interesting effect in New Zealand where not like the proportion of men that identify as bisexual in New Zealand seems to be a bit higher than everywhere else. So we'll see over time as our society becomes more gender equal as it is if this if this effect changes over time. Do you think there is something to the extent of female sexuality being more repressed than men's and therefore you see more women identify as asexual? I think that's a definite theory. That would definitely be, you know, it, it seems to make sense in terms of, you know, what we see in research and what we see around us, right? But I don't know if you would go then all the way to identifying as asexual or saying you're asexual, you'd probably just take up that more pure role <laughs> rather right. than rather than identify as asexual. So I guess all of those ideas probably feed into it being more socially acceptable for women mm. to use the asexual identity term and, and identify as asexual. How about biology? Do you think there's some biological differences that could lead to this gender difference? Yes. Naturally, I always write stuff from a sort of more society kind of base, but I always have reviewers being like, what about this hormone? What about <laughs> this hormone? And and of course, we can look at, at differences in, in estrogen and testosterone and the idea that, well, women have lower levels of testosterone, mm-hmm. therefore are less intersex. <laughs> that is something that has been floated. You know, here in, here in the States, we're inundated, Lara, with commercials for low testosterone or low T, as they call it. Could mm. testosterone, <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I don't know if you probably get it down there too, but it's constantly. Like you have guys talking about the fact that their sex drive or not, they can't exercise much because their testosterone levels are down. Could that have anything to do with asexuality? The fact that their testosterone levels drop so much that they just don't have that drive anymore? Well, I think that someone would need to go and do some hormone studies with this. Yeah. And, and this is, again, asexuality being an emerging research area over the last 13 years or so. A lot of researchers just haven't had the chance to go and do that. And of course, those men would then probably be in that group where they had had sexual desire before, so they were less likely to identify as asexual or go down that direction gotcha. with their identity. Yeah, and instead would yeah. go in the hypoactive right. sexual desire group. Mm. Now, you found something new that other studies have not really looked into before, and that's that uh, asexual people were much more likely to be non-cisgender, so not mm. fall into the gender binary of either identifying as a man or a woman, but as something other than that. And there some crazy number of like 100 plus times more likely to identify as non-cisgender. Yes. In our study, the time point where, because this is a multiple wave study, so we're up to like time eight, but this was the sixth time point of these people being sent the survey. And that was when we moved from just being like, what is your gender? Tick male, tick female. You know, we moved from that to, again, writing in what is your gender? Mm. And, you know, we wondered about this, oh, will people even know what we're asking? But will people just try and, like, muck us around? And then, of course, we knew that we wanted to to measure it that way to make sure that people who are trans, people who are non-binary, felt comfortable with the measure. So we moved moved to this measure and we found um, around 40 people in this sample of um, 15, 16,000 that identified as non-cisgender. So just... They wrote that they were transgender. They wrote agender, non-binary terms in in that gender box. Hmm. So from those people, we looked at their sexual orientation. And because a lot of the literature says that if you're 
non-cisgender, your sexual orientation then becomes kind of complicated. So it's like, are you then hetero? Are you then lesbian? Right. Like, w- hmm. what do you identify with? Yeah, right, because, that is a complicated question for you. Yeah. Because sexual orientation and is so, partly de- determined by what your gender is and then who the hmm. person you're attracted to, what their gender is. But if you don't have a gender or your gender identity is sort of you know, in between or something, then yeah, that becomes more complicated. Yeah. So for we, like, we just, you know, ran all these different demographics in this, in this model and found that the cisgender effect was quite large. Um, one of the larger effects that it was found um, so far in my sort of short career. <laughs> it's kind of the proportion more that I identify um, as asexual is seems quite staggering. But if we just look at the percentages, 93% of asexuals were cisgender, but nearly 100% of heterosexuals were. So we've got quite a few non-cisgender people in the sample um, that identify as asexual. About 7% of asexuals were um, non-cisgender. And if you're looking at only 40-something people in the overall sample, that's quite a large proportion. Mm. And one of the, like I've been asked about this finding quite a lot, and it seems as though, um, again, the reviewer who wanted me to go look at the biology, um, there are some thoughts around hormones, but then we don't necessarily know if the people in the sample are transitioning. We don't know what's going on with them. Hmm. And again, that's some kind of research that people would need to follow up. There was also someone who posited the idea that, oh, maybe people identify outside the binary have had like different levels of hormones exposure prenatally or when they were younger. Again, that's something we couldn't explore. We don't have the data for that, but it's something that maybe people should go and and look at. But then there's the other aspect of one of those things where if you're trans, if you're non-binary, you look at society and you go, okay, I'm not like a lot of these people. You head to the internet again. You head to like Tumblr. You know, you, you head to Instagram. You you mm. you um get head, head to various blogs and stuff. And you know, you're you're in this sort of phase of discovering your gender identity and thinking very deeply about gender and gender identity. And I'd say that leads you to think quite deeply about sexuality and mm. who you're attracted to, and the different sexual identity terms. A lot of the people that I know that are, are transgender or non-binary have a very sophisticated level of thinking about these topics and knowledge on these topics. You know, they're just experts because they've lived it, right? So I think for a lot of non-binary people, that kind of process of discovery that's happened with their gender might generalize to their sexual orientation. And so if they're asexual and that's who they are, then they've learned the term for it. So when we look at our study and our results, of course, non-cisgender people would identify as asexual at higher rates because they just know the terminology mm-hmm. and they've just developed that level of understanding. That would be my theory on it. It's just this more sophisticated level of understanding that people that might be not have the gender identity stuff to contend with, uh, people who are more on the heterosexual cisgender side of things, just have never sort of discovered that or never really thought about that in as much detail. And maybe also people who have these kind of non-binary gender identities, maybe they have a more complicated relationship to sexuality to begin with. Yeah. What's the emotional involvement for people asexual? Because you always hear people who are you know, young and they're coming out of the closet. It's emotionally tough for them to come out and, and tell people that you know they're gay. Or uh, How are the people who are asexual, how do they grasp it once, they, once they're able to identify it? Well, it seems like quite a tough process for asexual people. And this is one of the reasons that we did this study, because we wanted to get more research on asexuality out there so more people who are asexual can go, 
look <laughs> or people yeah. have knowledge of of this term because it's like it's the it's easier when i think it seems easier to come out if like the person that you're talking to has a vague idea of what you're talking about right. and so it seems as though for a lot of asexual people to come out they have to describe this stuff in a lot of detail because you've got to kind of take people back to this is what asexuality is because like in the qualitative literature in the interviews people have said things like, oh, people say, but you're not a plant, you know, because they just, people don't have this level of knowledge about asexuality, oh. you know, just the people they're coming out to. So that seems like quite a tough thing. And little studies that there have been on a prejudice towards asexuality seems like there is quite a bit out there as though it's like, if you came out as gay, lesbian, bisexual, people will go, oh, well, at least my grandchild, my child will find someone to love. Like that is, you know, one of the big goals in life. Um, but for asexual people, the family goes, but are you just going to die alone? Like, you know, kind of wow. framing being alone is a really bad, terrible, awful thing. <laughs> and related to this is the issue of mental health. So there have been some mm. prior studies finding that things like depression, self-esteem, life satisfaction, or just generally mental health and social well-being, connectedness with other people, sense of belongingness, social support, those kinds mm. of things may be somewhat lower So in asexuals, that asexuals may have more issues with this than sexual people. You did not find that. No, so we thought that was quite interesting because a lot of studies have found that people may be more psychologically distressed or have certain diagnoses. But we didn't find any differences across how people rate their physical health, how people on the, the standard, we've got the standard measure of psychological distress called the Kessler 6. And it kind of says over the past 30 days, how often have you felt nervous? How often have you felt everything was an effort? And it's used in, in New Zealand actually as a diagnostic tool for depression by our, our general practitioners and our doctors. So that was really interesting that we didn't find that. And then the other stuff around satisfaction with life and people's actual overall well-being. Again, we didn't find any of those differences. This brings me back to perhaps a protective function of having an asexual identity. Our study is just picking up, like a, again, a national representative sample of asexuals, even though, again, it is a small group. So we differ from past studies in that it is people that identifies asexual. So that may be a protective function. But we also differ from past studies that have said people with asexual identity were, were the participants and that we didn't recruit from the internet. So it may be that people that are quite active on those internet communities and fill in the surveys at more active rates are different in some ways to asexual people that may have gone through the journey of finding their identity. And now they're just perhaps not active online or not yeah, there may be some differences there. So you were basically saying that the people who identify as asexual, who already have that identity as a label to themselves, that they may be doing better in terms of their mental health or physical health compared to some of the other studies where asexuality was defined by just like not having attractions and that mm. that larger group of people without attractions who don't necessarily have the asexual identity, they might be the ones doing kind of more poorly? Yeah, so I think putting putting a name to how you're feeling seems to help people. So being like, okay, this is what I am. There's nothing wrong with it. There's this group of people where a minority of people, but we're, we're you know, a community. Um, other people have these experiences and other people can relate to me. That that has some kind of what we would call buffering effect. Mm -hmm. So that helps people's mental health. It helps them feel like they're part of something, part of a community, that there are other people out there that understand them. So we think that that might help. But again, it's one of those things where we'd need some, to really know this, we'd need some kind of study 
of people who were involved, who had been online and people who hadn't, and that would be really hard to be able to design on Disentangle. Right. Do you think maybe this is a New Zealand thing because you you all there are so progressive and open-minded and they, asexuals don't necessarily feel as stigmatized as they might elsewhere? Maybe, but there's still, we know that in New Zealand we still do have um, sort of the, the prejudice towards different sexual minorities and people with different gender identities. So there's some level of prejudice there still and there's still not really that level of awareness. Um, for example, one of our major newspapers had this, you know, they've got one of those agony aunt kind of columns where people write in mm. and, and say their issue. And um, a woman had written in and and the way she had described herself, she was saying, and she had even used the term asexual. She was like, could I be asexual? And the column was just like, oh, no, you know, you, you and your husband just need to go to a hotel room. <laughs> um, and it was just not really understanding, not really understanding what she was saying. So there's still a level of um, prejudice there. Maybe some, maybe something to do with the, the level of openness, but Again, it's one of those things that we can't know. So we'd need to see what the Australians, for example, have found. Now, due to the way that your question was asked, right, it was an open-ended question that people could write in. And you actually had to exclude a lot of responses. So about 20% of all mm. your participants did not get a valid kind of uh, value to their sexual orientation question. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about these excluded responses, who these people were, and and how you think that may have affected your analyses? So the question that we use, maybe looking back, wasn't <laughs> wasn't the most optimum one. But we it was just, you know, we had a limited amount of space on the on the overall survey. And there was also some people on the research team that were like, oh, we don't want to offend the more conservative people. Mm. So we did want to just leave it quite quite basic and simple there. The rate of missing data has been brought up by a lot of people. It's, oh, that's quite high um, for, for such a measure. You know, how do you think it, it does affect the results? As far as I can tell, doing a lot of other analyses over time, looking at the partners, because the, we've asked people for their partner's gender, looking at other sort of demographic characteristics and people's social attitudes. It does seem like most of the missing data are heterosexual people that just didn't know the terms or understood the terms. And some of those people, though, we, we understand some of the people in the missing data category, was, you know, all the non-response or the strange response, there were some strange responses um, <laughs> in, in that kind of category. Some of those people will be asexual and probably just don't want to write it down. And we know that some of those people will be lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, and so on. But again, just don't want to write it on a survey. But as far as I can tell, that does seem to be quite a small amount. And we will, in our study, be able to see over time, perhaps as those people come out, when they, you know, in maybe a couple of years' time, write in asexual or write in a different sexual orientation. So that'll be interesting to see. We can't really know how that did affect our analyses, but as far as we can tell, it is heterosexual people who have never had to think about their sexual orientation. So they don't even know what sexual orientation means. Mm. So they can't can't even fill out that question. Now, mm. there were some studies in the past looking at things like height and weight and finding that asexuals may be uh, somewhat shorter and perhaps somewhat lighter than straight people or, or sexual mm. people. What was that about? And you didn't find that. And so tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was hypothesized to be um, some perhaps some evolutionary differences or some health differences. They weren't quite sure as to what that would be. But yeah, we just didn't find that. And 
I think the other studies had done the same thing as us where they had asked people to report their own height and asked people to report their own weight, which, you know, there's some biases around yeah. that. Sure. Like, I'm six feet tall. I don't know if you know that, Laura. <laughs> sure. Six one. Oh, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always round up a bit, eh? Like, that's just, that's just what people do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the accuracy of any of those height and weight studies, what we would really need to do is have it be part of one of those sort of face-to-face studies. So, we would need to have someone actually measure people's height and weight in as objective as way as possible in order to know whether this finding, which some people have found, which we didn't find, if this is a real, actual, valid finding. And what is the current thinking regarding the causes of asexuality? Because I think a lot of people are wondering, like, what is going on? Why are some people like this? Well, as far as as far as we can see, and as far as is, is, is in the research at the moment and in the sort of literature thinking um, of people in this area, it seems to just be that sexuality or asexuality is like everything. It's just on, on a dimension, on a scale. You know, there's, there's variation amongst people. And you know, most people, again, it's, it's on that the idea of people having no sexual attractions and then people having, you know, we know there's people that have a lot of sexual attractions <laughs> to a lot of different people. Um, and it's just natural variation in that dimension. For some people it is. It's like they've never been attracted to anyone. And then there's some people who have been always attracted to perhaps too many people, but not judging. Um, but so, so many people that it becomes, you know, takes over their lives. So there's there's quite a lot of variation there. And, we're, you know, on any sort of scale, a lot of people just kind of sit around the middle. And that's what I would say asexuality is. It's just a natural variation in romantic and sexual attractions and, and desire. And there's nothing wrong with it. No. We're not <laughs> here to judge, right, Laura? We're not here to judge. No. You know, and there's, there's variation in all of these things around sexuality, isn't there? I mean, that's one of the great yeah. or interesting things in the field, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. one of the great things about sex science, that yes. there's variation. <laughs> yeah, without variation, we would have no jobs, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> <People> studying sex. <laughs> yeah. Any other myths about asexuality you think we should dispel that maybe we didn't touch upon? Well, I think that the stereotype, the current sort of stereotype or thought that a lot of people have about asexuality is Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Like, I feel as though that's the one that yeah. pops up. People who are kind of almost on the autism spectrum. Yeah, almost, and, yeah, ro- almost robotic, right, to a certain spe- extent? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're almost and like robotic. some people robo- on the autism spectrum are asexual. Yeah, that's, that's a thing. But then there's a lot of asexual people that, you know, do want, you know, are romantics or do want a relationship, a marriage. You know, they want or they want certain different things that aren't necessarily sort of more neutral kind of yeah. <laughs> scientific logical kind of person, you know, that um, asexual people can be everything and anything, really. That this is just people's sexual attraction. That's all that is. That's not who they are as a person. That's just one one aspect of many identities that people have. Right. I think people are not surprised to find some of your findings like asexuals are less likely to be partnered or less likely to be a parent Mm -hmm. or less likely to have had sex or have sex less often. But Mm. I think a lot of people might be surprised by the fact that a pretty substantial number, uh, maybe minority, but a pretty substantial number of mm. asexuals do have relationships and are parents and do sometimes have sex. Yeah, and I mean, some, for, uh, you know, to some degree that will be some people that are asexual but have felt forced or pressured into marriages or relationships and, you know, I'm sure that they, you know, got some, maybe got some stuff out of that, whether that be their kids or their, you know, strong personal relationship with their partner. Um, and then there'll be people on the other hand that, that are asexual, but are still very much romantically attracted or in love with their partner. And they then ended up, you know, having children or of course having children is 
probably not related at all to one sexual attraction. You know, there's so many different ways to have kids now. Right. So there are so many possibilities as to like who those people are. But I mean, one of the things that would be, and, and you know, we've seen over the years um, with lesbian and gay people, that one of the things that we hope going forward, right, is that people can just be themselves. And if they don't want to get married, if they don't want to um, have kids and they don't want to move into this sort of like, you know, have their white picket fence and their, their yeah. Labrador and that, that they can do that. Going back to the thing you said at the top of the show, the one thing that strikes me is like, what did people do without the internet? Like struggling with this. Can you imagine like how how to process not having a sex drive or attraction to anyone else when everyone around you, especially in older generations, is like, you've got to go to school, get married, have kids, start a family. Like the struggle must have been just insane. I can't even imagine what people must have been going through when they identified as asexual. Yeah. I mean, it's just this this is the, th- the thing for such a, you know, more, more than just asexuality. I remember getting a survey in and, and doing doing some of the data entry on this project. And there was a guy who was born in the 1930s and he wrote on his that, you know, that he was gay. And I just like, it actually made me cry because wow. I was thinking of the way that his life has played out. Right. Mm-hmm. And the different pressures on, on um, his life across time. And um, we, in New Zealand, homosexual sex was legalized in the mid 1980s. So this guy had quite a lot of time. Wow. He was illegal, you know, and it's just like, what, how, how, I can't imagine a life like that. And um, hopefully, again, people and asexual people won't have to do that. And, I mean, a lot of older people especially bemoan the internet and they're like, oh, all those young people on the internet, on their social media at the time. But, I mean, this is one of the positive things about the internet is people don't feel as alone. And they can, for a lot of asexual people who seem to make up a relatively small proportion of the population, are able to go online and find others just like them. And that seems to be a good experience for people. Cool. Lara Greaves, thank you very much for joining us today. I mean, this is super educational, and I, I hope everyone who's listening learned a lot about asexuality. So thank you very much, and good luck. Thank you. No, that was great fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Science of Sex Afterglow. Teachers and staff in an Oregon school district, which includes about 40,000 students, were recently told that if they learn or merely suspect a student is sexually active, they must report it to law enforcement or state officials. According to Oregon law, Dr. John, anyone under 18 cannot legally give consent, meaning all sexual activity between minors is considered sexual abuse. So if a teacher, say you're teaching a classroom Mm -hmm. there in Oregon, and you find out that Sally and Billy, who are 16 years old, are having sex, you need to report it to the authorities. That is insane. So we talked about age of consent laws last time. Yeah. And these do, you know, these exist. Yeah. And they differ from state to state and country to country. In Oregon, the age of consent is 18. But what that means in virtually all jurisdictions, the way I understand it, is that someone younger than 18 cannot give consent to have sex with someone who's not considered a minor, who is an adult in that state. So to claim that all sex that happens between minors is abuse, first of all, completely inaccurate because it's not abuse if it's consensual between two minors. (laughs) It's perfectly not abusive. But apparently they're not 18, so they can consent. Yes, they can can consent to sex with each other. Not to Oregon. In Oregon, they can't consent. That's insane. So first, it's it's inaccurate, psychologically speaking. And two is extremely harmful to pathologize what is perfectly normal expression of sexuality between teenagers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable about teenagers having sex, but that's the reality of the situation. And data shows that about that the mean age of first intercourse in the U.S. and the median age are 17. 
That means by 17, 50% of all students will have had sex. Wow. Okay, 50% of all students will have had sex by age 17. And so uh, are we saying that something like 60% by the time they're 18 have been sexually abused because they had consensual sex with their peers? That is that is completely insane and illogical and harmful, both on an individual level and on a societal level. Now, we're not the only ones who thought this was weird, Dr. Jana. Local media <laughs> reached out to other school districts around the state and mm-hmm. found out that no one else had the same mandate. So it's just one school district in Oregon who's decided to do this. And it's weird. Can you imagine the, the position that it puts teachers in? And not only that, the position that it puts students in. Because mm-hmm. say if a student wants to confide in someone, they don't want to talk to their friends. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk to their parents, parents. about sex. Mm-hmm. And if they talk to a teacher, that teacher then has to, to report, them. report them. Yeah. Th- that seems again, counterintuitive. It's so harmful because yeah. you want these students to be able to come to their teachers and discuss sexual issues and be able to discuss sexual health perhaps or birth control or if pregnancy happened or if there is some sort of a worry or concern about being in a non-consensual relationship or in an abusive relationship or something like that. You have to be able to talk to these adults. Like who else would be better to talk to than your teachers, especially if they're pretty sex positive and open and they have this built trust with yeah. with you. I think this is handicapping severely both students and professors to have good, healthy, positive interactions and help these kids have sex in a good way, in a healthy, psychologically and physically healthy way, because that is the key. I mean, just saying no to sex until you're married or until you're 18, that doesn't work. We have the data, right? If you have 60% of people having had sex by the age of 18, then would you rather those people have shitty sex, sex that's not protected, that's not desired, that's not pleasurable, that's maybe not fully wanted or consensual and not negotiated properly? Or do you want these people to be educated on how to go about good and healthy sex? And, and I know you're a big fan of sex education. Can Absolutely. you imagine what their sex ed classes are there? Like the kids kids should be afraid to say anything. I don't, you know, right? The yeah. kids shouldn't. Say, can you imagine if they're in class and, and a teacher's starting to have education, whether about, you know, pregnancy or, you know, just basic, you know, vaginal sex? Mm. The students can't say a word because if they yeah. do, it could hint to the fact that they've had sex right. and then the teacher has to say to someone and then they've got to launch an investigation. No, no, this is completely insane. It is crazy. Now, if anyone from Oregon is listening to the podcast, <laughs> I'd love to find out what would happen if two teenagers were caught having sex. Like, would they throw them in jail? I could not find any information about that because there hasn't been cases about that. There's obviously statutory cases, you know, in terms statutory of- Statutory rape. R- rape. Yeah, but that's when an adult is having sex with with a minor. Absolutely. But what happens to two minors if they have sex? If, I, so, I, okay, so how does this work? Teacher reports 16 and 17 year old Sally and John and reports them to police and right. then what happens what does the police do I'd love to find out <laughs> I, I so bizarre and I will say so that the, the district did claim that the policy is for the teenager's safety oh and how does that increase <laughs> teenager safety exactly I, I don't know it's mind-boggling. Wow. So, okay. I, I hope this is a total fluke. And yeah. It's a sci-fi really, movie, right? It, 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 like, this is something like, something like, like it would be one of those Philip so, K. Dick novels or something like that. Yeah, so is the, is it, are the cops going to have like a registry of all sexually active students? <laughs> oh, jeez. Like 50% of them, which is, you said 40,000 students in that yeah. district. So what, 20,000 records? Up. Yeah. Going to round them wow. up. And- 
we should write this book. This could be really good. We should stop talking about this right now. Well, we have to stop talking about it for other reasons because we have to wrap up. So uh, we do have to wrap up. Like I said, if anyone from Oregon is listening to this, please let me know. We're dying to find out. We could not find any information about what happens between teenagers having sex in Oregon, but we'd love to find out. But maybe we'll save that. Maybe by next week we'll have that information. And Dr. Johnny, you have people. You can maybe reach out <laughs> to like a professor in Oregon and see what the deal okay, is with that. Okay, I'll All right, try. cool. All right, do you want to do that little plug for that bi curiosity extravaganza you're uh, going to be at? Yes, Brooklyn, New York, on the 16th of November. That's a Thursday evening. There will be a live event with Dr. Jana talking about mostly heterosexuality or bi curiosity, sexual fluidity, and so on. So I would love to see as many of you as possible. And you can also watch on live stream more information about the event and tickets and all that on eventbrite.com and on Facebook as Sex Science Social Bi Curiosity. And there'll be more information on my website, drjana.com as well. I don't know if you noticed, uh, but you sound like an NBA player. You refer to yourself as the third person. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if this is a new you. Maybe you're going to start. Did yeah, you, you did. You refer to yourself as the third person. So maybe next week, let us know how the game went. And uh, even though even though I know you're not into sports at all, but you very much sounded like you played for the Knicks just then. I, I don't know what to say to that. I'm speechless. <laughs> how about goodbye? <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 